Father, we ask that as we open up your word now, that you would open up our heart and our mind, that you would make us attentive to your voice. And we pray that as you have told us, O oh God, that you inhabit the praises of your people, that your spirit dwells among us as we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, as we let your word dwell in our midst, you are here with us, God, and we believe that. And so we ask that you would speak to us and that you would make us present to your voice and that in attending to your voice, you would change us. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. So this last year, some of you might know this, but there was a film that was released entitled The Most Reluctant Convert. And the film is about the life of this man. Does anybody know who this is? C.S. Lewis. And the title of the film is taken from a little phrase that's in Lewis's autobiography called Surprised by Joy, where he describes himself as England's most reluctant convert. And uh, he, he described his own conversion journey and how he, he wasn't exactly seeking God. He didn't really want this to happen, but he had to follow kind of the logic of the argument wherever it took him. And where it took Lewis was to actually repent and to entrust his life to Jesus. But what's interesting as you study the life of Lewis is you realize that Lewis was not only one of England's most reluctant converts, you discover that Lewis was also one of England's most reluctant churchgoers. Lewis, he describes that in his first few years of his Christian life, he had a real problem with church. He just didn't like it that much. And he says this, and I read this because some of you might relate. He says, though I liked clergymen as I liked bears, try not to be offended by that, I had as little wish to be in the church as in the zoo. It was, to begin with, a kind of collective, a wearisome get-together affair. I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. Some of you right now, your intention, because you love Lewis and you love hymns, and you don't know what to feel right now. And then there was the fussy, time-wasting botheration of it all. The bells, the crowds, the umbrellas, the notices, the bustle, the perpetual arranging and organizing. And then he says this, I couldn't yet see how a concern of that sort should have anything to do with one's spiritual life. To me, religion ought to have been a matter of good men praying alone and meeting by twos and threes to talk of spiritual matters. Now, I don't think Lewis is alone of having a distaste for church attendance. I think a lot of us maybe in this room have had that same experience. Maybe there's been seasons in your life where it has just felt like a little bit tiresome to you. And there's different reasons for that. For some of you, it might just be the bothersome church people. You know, sometimes church people can just be tiresome and they can be bothered. Is this offensive? But you, you know what I mean, right? I mean, sometimes people can just be a bother and they can be annoying and there can be Christian cliches and all of this religious lingo that's thrown out there. And it seems to just run against your grain because you know how they live and you see what they're doing. You're like, that doesn't look like Jesus at all. And I think a lot of us have felt that sentiment that's been expressed by many, many people uh, today. And that's the, the sentiment, I love Jesus, but sometimes I just have a problem with the church. 
And I have, a, I have difficulty sometimes with church. And, and I know for some of you, that's not true. For some of you, you feel like the weekly gathering of believers is your lifeline. And you love the corporate gathering. It feeds and nourishes your soul. But for others, it might be kind of a difficulty. You might relate to Lewis like, look, I, I, I love Jesus. And, and I, I like the spiritual life. I like to read theology books and pray. And, and I don't mind getting together with two or three people and talking about it. But the bothersome, you know, corporate gathering, you know, this collective kind of, uh, what, is, what does he call it? Uh, a wearisome get-together affair. You're like, I just, that sometimes rubs against my grain. Well, if, if that's ever been a way you felt, again, you are not alone. There was a group of Christians in the first century who felt the same way. And many were in danger of actually withdrawing from the regular rhythm of corporate worship. And in the text that we're going to look at today, uh, the author to the letter to the Hebrews addresses this group of people. And in addressing them, he addresses us about our need to cultivate a rhythm and a habit of engagement in regular corporate worship. Now, Alicia told me this week, she asked me what I was preaching on. I said, I was talking about, I said, the theme of my sermon today is go to church. And she said, isn't that kind of like Jeff Bezos telling people to shop at Amazon? And um, I tried not to be offended. But um, actually, I'm going to have the, the author of the Hebrews is going to exhort us to go to church. He's going to tell us this. Now, this is part of our rhythm series. So we began a series the last few weeks, again, called Rhythms. And what we've been talking together about are rhythms and habits that we engage in that shape and form us as disciples of Jesus. So all of us want to become someone different than we are today. At least, I think a lot of us want to grow into people of love and of faithfulness, and we want to be full of good works. We want to be people of intelligence and wisdom and spiritual depth. Like, we want to grow into these kind of people. But you don't grow into that kind of person by accident. Instead, uh, it becomes the outcome of God's grace in our life through the habits and the practices and the rhythms we engage in. And so we've been talking about some of the most significant and important practices. A few weeks ago, we talked about prayer. And then a couple weeks back, we talked about scripture meditation. Last week, we talked about the discipline of solitude and silence. And today, I want to talk about the discipline of regular participation in the life of a worshiping community. In other words, I want to talk to you about the importance of what we're doing right here, the importance of engaging in word and sacrament, of songs and prayers, of breaking afterwards and talking together. I want to talk to you about the significance and the importance of the local church. James K.A. Smith, in his book called You Are What You Love, said this, he said, the most potent, charged, transformative site of the Spirit's work is found in the most unlikely of places, the church. The church's worship is the heart of discipleship. Yes, Christian formation is a life-encompassing Monday through Saturday, week-in, week-out project, but it radiates from and is nourished by the worshiping life of the congregation gathered around word and sacrament. You know, a little bit later in the same book, Smith tells that old famous preacher joke of the preacher who was in a city that was flooded and he was sitting on his porch. And as the flood waters were rising, he prayed to God, God, I pray that you would rescue me. 
And a couple minutes later, a guy in a canoe comes by and says, hey, hop in my canoe. The floodwaters are rising. And he says, no, no, I'm waiting for God to rescue me. And then a couple minutes later after that, somebody in a motorboat drives by and the floodwaters are rising. And he says, uh, hop in, let me save you from the flood. He says, no, no, I'm going to wait for God to rescue me. And then um, the floodwaters, again, it started to rise. The man climbed up from the porch up to the top of his roof as, as, as the levees began to broke and flood. And then finally, a helicopter flew over, threw down a rope to him and said, grab the rope so you can be saved. And uh, the man said, no, I'm waiting for God to rescue and save me. And the helicopter flew off and the man drowned and he was dead. And then he arrives at the pearly gates and he approaches God and he says, God, what gives? He said, I, 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 was, I was stuck and I was dying and I called out to you. I was trusting that you would save me. And he said, what is wrong with you? He said, I sent you a canoe and then I sent you a motorboat and then I sent you a helicopter. He says, my resources were all around you. And Jamie Smith says, the practices of prayer and song, preaching and giving, baptism and communion are the canoes and boats and helicopters that God graciously sends our way to mold and shape us to be God's people. Now, or we could put it like this, in our project of becoming people of wisdom and love and intelligence and spiritual depth, one of the most important resources that God has provided for us is this time together, the regular rhythm of gathering together each week for corporate worship. But that raises a question, and maybe some of you are already thinking this. You think, yeah, I, I get what you're saying, and I can see in theory that that's right, but some of the most cantankerous, obnoxious, pharisaical, hypocritical people I know are the people who are most committed to that weekly thing of going to church, right? And you think, it didn't seem to work that well. Maybe there are other resources that are better than this one. But of course, it, it will require more than just showing up to worship. You know, in the same way that if I attend a math class, it requires something of me that it demands something more than that I just show up. You know, they say that showing up is what, 80% of, right? You get credit for just showing up, but not in math. Like, you need to do a little bit more. You have to do the homework, and you've got to think, and you've got to engage. And of course, when it comes to the local church, more is required than just us showing up. And so we are invited to do something more than create a habit and a rhythm and a priority of being here every week, week in, week out. We are in quite, we, there's something more required of us, and it is that more that I want to talk to you about today. It's that more that actually the author to the Hebrews is talking to us about. He tells us kind of how, not, he doesn't just tell us to go to church, he tells us how to show up when we get here. And so I just want to walk through this text, and I want you to see how we are called to show up when we come together in this place. This is among the most practical teachings because it deals with what you are doing right now in this very second. You know, sometimes you're like, church didn't apply to me today. It applies to you right now because I'm talking to you about what we are doing right now. He's going to show us how to show up. But before he, show, before he tells us how to show up in worship, he announces to us the most stunning reality about this time, about worship. A stunning cosmic reality a dramatic shift 
in the cosmos that has occurred in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is where he begins. Look at what it says in the text, verse 19 of chapter 10. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is his flesh, and since we have such a great high priest over the household of God, he asserts this stunning reality. He says, since you have, uh, since you, you, we, have been, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And since, he says, we have this great high priest over heaven. And what the author is doing, by the way, we don't know who authored this book. I think it was Ryan Wiley. But um, <laughs> we don't know who the author of Hebrews is, so I'm just going to keep referring to the author. But the author declares the stunning reality that is framed in the symbolic world and the symbolic ritual of the Old Testament practice of animal sacrifice and temple worship. In other words, before he talks to us about our worship and what it means, he frames our understanding of worship in how the Old Testament people of God worshiped. And how did that work? Well, in the Old Testament, you know, the people of Israel knew what most people in America almost fail to grasp. And that's that God is not simply a nice sky fairy that you call upon from time to time to help us get a date or to win a mate or to win the game or to get what we want to help us live our best life. Now, God is not a great big cosmic genie. He's not our great buddy in the sky. According to, the, to, to Israel, God was the commander of angel armies. He was the creator of heaven and earth. He was that infinite and eternal power that called all things into being. God is that holy love, that holy other, who is completely other than we are. He is creator and we are creation. And they knew that the angels did not cease crying day and night as they went before the throne, holy, holy, holy that in his presence, even the seraphim and the great cherubim, the angelic creatures would cover their eyes to be shielded from the holiness of God. You know, there's this uh, little story in the Old Testament where Moses and the children of Israel are given a glimpse of, of the holy God. And, and it says, and they saw the God of Israel. And then the very next phrase, it describes the pavement underneath his feet. As if to say they saw the glory of Israel and the only thing they could describe is the pavement on which he stood. God is so utterly undescribable. He is so wholly other. He is holy, holy, holy. And yet this holy God determined to live in the middle, right in the heart of the people of Israel. And so when Israel was wandering through the wilderness, God allowed them to set up this tabernacle and gave them instructions for the tabernacle where God's presence would dwell in their midst. And there was different sections in the tabernacle. You know, kind of like when you go into an airplane and you walk through first class and all those people look at you disdainfully, like get in the back, you loser, and you walk back there. You know, there were different sections in the tabernacle. There was 
the, the place where you would go and there was the, the, the bronze altar where the animal sacrifices would be, would be put, and then you'd go in a little bit further. And then the very heart of it was called the holy place. And inside the holy place was the holiest instrument in Israel's knowledge. It was the Ark of the Covenant. And over the Ark of the Covenant, there would be a cloud where God's visible presence would, would manifest to show that God was present right in the middle of his people. And one time a year, the, the priest would go, the high priest would go into that holy place and would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. But the, the priest knew better than just to waltz into the presence of God any old time he went, wanted to. No, he had to wear the proper uniform and the proper undergarments and the proper turban and the proper sash. And he would have to offer a bowl on behalf of himself and his family to cleanse him. And then only after going through all of this rigmarole and all of this ritual, only then could he enter into the presence of the true and living God. And, and as the high priest, he would offer prayers and the sacrifices representing the whole community of Israel to say God, for God to say, this is where I want to dwell is in the middle of my people. And the only way we can do this is through the sacrificial system, through a mediator. You know, in the same way that you don't just walk into the office of the president of the United States, Right? No, you would have to have some kind of mediator to get in there. You'd have to know like Larry James or something and get like secret passage and, you know, this sort of thing. And, why, you know, you'd have to get past all of the guards and the layers. And this was Israel. Like you just didn't walk into the presence of the God who is holy other. And then Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus, who declares himself to be the true and better temple and tabernacle, the true and better sacrifice and the true and better priest. And Jesus, through his death and resurrection, through an act of stunning self-giving love, tears open this barrier between the presence of God and the people of God. And now after Jesus, and because of his mediatorial work as sacrifice and as temple and as priest, now God's presence can be enjoyed by all of God's people without a priest and without a sacrifice and without a temple. We can come together as God's people and we can believe and trust that God is with us. He is in this place. Do you believe that? God has come to be with his people and he's made a way whereby we can be with him. In Paul's letter that he wrote to the church in Ephesus, he put it like this. He said, and you all are like stones being built together to be a dwelling place of God by his spirit. When we gather together for corporate worship, God is among us. God is with us. Now, I know that sounds lofty, doesn't it? And you think, man, it just doesn't feel like God is with us, you know? Sometimes it does, right? But sometimes it just feels like I'm, I'm sitting next to Robert Cavolo, you know, or something, you know, which is nice. Don't get me wrong. But we, we, we're, we're, we instead just feel like we're surrounded by this presence of weak, vulnerable, conflicted, compromised people all around us. And it just doesn't seem that dramatic here. But here's the announcement. The presence of God has chosen to dwell in the midst of the unimpressive and the vulnerable and the conflicted and the compromised people like us. And so in light of this reality, he says, now let me tell you how to show up when you come here. 
when you come every week. He says, in light of this reality that the temple has, the, the veil has been torn open, you have full access. We can come in the presence of God. We have a high priest, Jesus, who ever lives to make intercession for us. He says, in light of all of that, he says three things that you need to know to show up well. He says, number one, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our conscience sprinkled and our bodies washed with pure water. He says, number one, in light of the reality of what our corporate gatherings are in their essence, he says, when you come, when you come here, here's how you should show up. Show up ready to draw near to God. He says, show up ready to to enter in and to allow your body to respond to the true and living God, maybe because you open up your hands in a posture of receptivity to God or a posture of exaltation and glory to God. You bring your body into this place. You draw your body near to God and you draw your ears near to God as his word is read and as his word is preached and, and you, you bring your fingers near to God as you take notes and you, you, you try to be attentive to what God might speak and you, 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 you draw near to God when you come into this place. When the prayers are prayed, you, you, you bend your own heart and mind to focus on what the words are saying and you engage in that prayer. This is the invitation to us. Again, it's not just to show up, it's to show up ready and prepared and come to engage. Come ready to draw near to God. And notice he says, having your own hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and your bodies washed with pure water. He again is using sacrificial Old Testament language there to simply describe a person who comes into this place out of a relationship with God that is open and honest and authentic, where there's a readiness to repent and change and acknowledge what's wrong and to seek God. And you come into the gathering and you say, God, I am ready to draw near. And so number one, in light of what worship is, he says, let us draw near to God with a pure heart and full assurance of faith. Secondly, look at what he says in verse 23. He says, and let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He says, secondly, not only come ready to hear from God, ready to respond to God, which, by the way, I want you to notice, I forgot to say this in my life, is it okay if I just move quickly back to the last point? Just this once, thank you, Pastor Cavolo. Listen, when he says draw near to God, understand that he's inviting us to respond to the reality that God has already drawn near to us. Worship doesn't first begin with us. It begins with God. You know, it was pagan ideas of worship that believed that the worship was about you bringing something to God, bringing your sacrifice to God. And if it was serious enough, if you brought the right crop or the right animal sacrifice or in some terrible situations, a child or something, you might be able to get God's attention. You might be able to bend his ear so that you can get God to do what you want him to do. But in the biblical worldview, it is the complete opposite. 
It is not us who goes up and tries to shake God's ear and get God to come near to us. It is God who has come near to humanity in Jesus Christ by his grace. And our worship is a response to the grace of God. We draw near to the God who has already drawn near to us. And so he says, let us draw near. But then secondly, he says, let us hold fast to our confession of faith without wavering for he who promised is faithful. You know, the reality is, is that more and more we are inhabiting a world that just doesn't support and nurture and sustain our confession of faith. We confess that there is a God that we are not God, that there is a creator and all of life ought to be lived for his glory and his honor, that the world around us needs to be treated as something sacred that God called into being. We, we, we confess that God is our creator and we confess that God has come among us in Jesus Christ and God has defeated the power of sin and darkness and that it is God's love that will ultimately win, not hate, not darkness. These are our confessions. And when we come together as a people of God and when we come together in worship, part of what we are doing is we are holding fast to that confession and we do that by being together. I can remember, maybe some of you can, when I was younger, a pastor using the analogy of, uh, you know, charcoal briquettes. And he would say that charcoal briquettes always stay hotter when they're kept together, right? But if you take one briquette and you put it on the side, it's going to grow cold. And it's the same thing with our own faith, our own confession of faith. These realities that God is creator, that God has been victorious in Jesus, that our life is not our own, that we are sons and daughters of God, that we have meaning and worth and value, that we are worthy because God has set his love and his worth upon us in Jesus Christ. All of these realities are easily, they easily grow cold unless you are around people that help nurture that and strengthen that and cause the fire of your own faith to grow. And so number one, to show up here means we show up in order to draw near to God and we come ready for that. But secondly, we show up to jointly and together confess our faith and to hold strong to our confession of faith. You know, there is something about being together that strengthens what you believe. And sometimes, I don't know if you ever found this to be the case where you come into church and sometimes you don't feel like worshiping. You don't feel like singing and you just feel depressed or you feel lull or, or you just feel, did I just say lull? You feel low and you're overcome with boredom or you're numb. But you come among other people. And I don't know if you've had that feeling where you just, like last week we had Wes and Jackie Ringer with us and just watching Jackie Ringer who, who's been spending, you know, days in the Sudan just worshiping Jesus with her whole heart. There was something about that that warmed my own heart. And when you see, you know, a teenager worshiping passionately, or you see somebody who's been walking with Jesus for six decades of their life, still fully engaged. I think about Mel and Donna Matthews. Mel always just warms my heart when I watch him. And there's something about being together that strengthens our faith. It's this practice. And don't you see, if you don't build this regular rhythm and habit in your own life, your faith grows cold. And so number one, we show up by drawing near to God. Number two, we show up 
by strengthening our corporate collective faith together. But thirdly, we show up by being ready to both encourage and be encouraged. Look at what it says next, verse 24. He says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I love it, that phrase, let us consider how to stir up one another. That word stir up is uh, the word in, in the Greek is to provoke. It's kind of like, let us consider how we can go over and prod and poke somebody and stir them up a little bit. And, and I think this comes out of uh, the Jewish writers who are writing this. You know, if you've ever noticed in Judaism, there's much more of a willingness to kind of get into some vigorous debate and argument and discussion, you know. There's kind of a, a joy to this banter back and forth that kind of, and, and I think in our evangelical churches, we're getting to a place where we don't want to have people we disagree with. We don't want to have banter. We just want to have a homogeneous group that thinks like us and votes like us and has the same life stage as us and the same, and it's like, no. No, you need other people around you who will poke and prod you. But poke and prod you to do what? Well, it says in the text, to stir you up to love and to good works. In other words, you are to be a provocateur. Is that, did I say that word right? Provocateur. Thank you, Carol. Was that you, Carol? Yeah, thank you. It's hard to tell with these masks on who's talking. But, you know, sometimes we can think the point of getting together is to stir us up to angst and self-righteousness about everyone out there in the world. In other words, people go to church for the same reason that they watch or they listen to maybe Ben Shapiro or they listen or they read the editorial page in the New York Times. Typically, it's not to be prodded and distorted and to be given a new opinion for yourself that challenges you. You do that oftentimes to have your own previous opinions reinforced and to be reminded that you're right and everyone out there is an idiot. And sometimes we go to church hoping that the pastor's going to do that. They're going to prod us up to anger and angst and self-righteous indignation about everyone out there, and that's not the purpose of coming together. According to, to the writer here, the purpose is to stir one another up to what? To love. What is love? To love somebody is to work and well their good. And to good works. Well, what kind of good works? Well, James says to care for orphans and widows in their distress. Jesus talks about feeding the naked or feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and visiting the lonely. And there's no shortage of ways in which we can embody sacrificial self-giving love among each other and among this community in which we live. And there are so many ways in which you and I need to be prodded in that direction, right? Quite frankly, I don't need more people to prod me up to self-righteous indignation about all the wicked, awful people out there. I need, I need models. And I need inspiration. And I need to be poked and prodded to live a life that's marked by love and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control and joy. I need to be moving out into the world in love and good works. And when we come together, this is what we are trying to do, is stir one another up to love and good works, to provoke each other. But not just provoke each other, to encourage each other. Look what he says in verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
We need to look out for each other and to hear where there's a pain or there's a hurt or there's somebody who needs a listening ear. You know, when we end our time in our corporate time here and we go, well, we used to go out and have, we will, we'll get donuts soon, friends. Can I get a witness on the donuts? And the coffee. You know, um, but a lot of us, we come in and we feel burdened and we need some encouragement. And so we come to be provoked and to provoke. And we come to be an encouragement and to be encouraged. You know, we, we come in, in many respects to be broken out of oftentimes what C.S. Lewis calls our solitary conceit. That idea that on my own I can walk this journey, that on my own I have all of the right opinions and knowledge, that on my own I can do it and I am better than everyone else. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, letter, or his book, Screwtape Letters, where he's talking about, uh, he, there's, a, there's a de- one demon who's talking, do you guys know about Screwtape Letters? Some of you don't, I'll have to quickly explain it. What I'm going to read you is a senior demon advising a junior demon how to tempt a Christian. And so in what I'm going to read you, uh, there's going to be a reference to the enemy, but from the vantage point of the demon, the enemy is God. Now, did you get all that? So um, here's here's what the demon says. He says, surely you know that if a man can't be cured through church going, or if the man can't be cured of church going, so he says, first, try to get the, the, the patient away from church. But if they can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the the church that suits him until he becomes a taster and connoisseur of churches. And he says the reasons are obvious. In the first place, the parochial organization should always be attacked because being a unity of place and not of likings, it brings people of different classes and psychology and political opinions together in a kind of unity that the enemy, that is God, desires. In the second place, listen to this, the search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy wants him to be a pupil. Walking in simply as a critic and a judge of everyone else is not our place but instead to walk in from a posture of, I need to learn and grow, I need to be encouraged, I need to be provoked to love and good works, and I come here as a pupil and a learner. And if we come to this place, friends, if, if, in, if in the months ahead, one of the things that marks this community out is a longing that when we get together, we are not just getting together as human beings engaged in religious ritual, but we come together as weak people hungry to be in the presence of God. And we come prepared and ready to meet God. And we put our bodies in a posture of worship and our lips and our mouth and our ears and our all in a posture of God, we want you. And if together we take seriously the responsibility in the midst of a culture 
that so often questions the hope and meaning that we confidently profess together, if we hold on to that together and strengthen each other, and if we are constantly coming here looking not only to encourage and provoke, but also to be encouraged and to be provoked and to take this posture of a learner and a pupil, then over the next several months, even, even if we don't make any great advance into how we execute weekly worship, And we try to do that. We work hard at what we do here. I work hard on my sermons. The worship team works hard on what they're doing. You know, we work hard on what we put together. But but really, at the end of the day, the most important part is the heart we bring into this place. Amen? And so we are invited to be people in the weeks and months ahead who, number one, commits to a weekly rhythm of, of worship Make this a priority. Maybe if you're at home right now and you've been watching online and it's not that you're at home because, you know, you've got a compromised immune system and you just don't feel... Some of you, you just got out of the habit of being here and you stopped coming and bringing your... You need to come and make this a priority. And we need to make gathering together a priority if we want our faith to be nurtured and strengthened and grow, and if we want to encounter the true and living God in community. And so let's turn to God now as the worship band comes up. And as we sing our final song together, let's sing these words in faith that we are not alone, that God is here in this place with us, and let's raise our voice in song and in dependence upon him. Let's pray together, though. Father, we come to you now and we thank you that you have not left us alone in this world, that you have come to us, that you have made yourself known to us, that you have opened up a way whereby we can have a relationship with you. God, we know that underneath the hunger and the thirst that we experience in this life is a deep hunger and thirst for you that can only be satisfied in a relationship with you. And I pray, God, that you would continue to help us grow into that relationship that you have made available to us in your son, Jesus. And we pray that even now you would open up our lips, that we could sing your praise, that we could make these words that we will speak that express dependence upon you. God, true and honest prayers from our lips. Come inhabit the praises of your people, we pray. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.